Yeah, on. on the bus and you can't fuck with the violent femmes you cannot fuck with this band <laughs> I love that I love that I guess that I guess <laughs> let's just play let's play one more time let's see that again in an instant replay the violent femmes they bring all their equipment on the bus and you can't fuck with the violent femmes. You cannot fuck with this band. <laughs> I love it. So they, they use that. Uh, welcome to Two Twins in an Album, by the way. A very warm welcome. So they use that soundbite nubs in their, uh, I guess they had a compilation that actually was one of those things that seemingly everybody had in the uh, mid nineties, they, I think it was called added up the singles and, and track one was that, which I guess was a radio DJ introducing the band back in their heyday. But (laughs) you cannot fuck with this band, you know, just, (laughs) and like the band that he's talking about too. It's like, it's funny that that would be applied to this band. Like I could see maybe introducing Slayer with such (laughs) <laughs> aggression right but it's like the violent femmes you know it's yeah. pretty, who who actually says that dude and you said it's a dj is it somebody notable no i i don't think so i mean it, it could be i i tried to figure out sort of dig further on it but i think it was just a, a radio dj that was introducing the band you know at one of their gigs but you know it's interesting you you kind of touch on a little bit of the um irony you know and the tongue-in-cheek and some of those things which Part of what makes that introduction interesting is that it kind of matches the sort of odd, unorthodox approach that this band took. And and they did kind of have an attitude, um, but it wasn't angry. You know, it was kind of just an attitude and, you know, led to tonight's album, which, you know, in the eyes of many is, you know, sort of a pioneering uh, effort when it comes to post-punk. Uh, or alternative music, as it became known, or uh, folk punk. There are all kinds of things that you can use to describe this. Um, and while there were some influences that we'll get into a little bit uh, on this band from some sounds and some, you know, sort of what many would consider the original pioneers of this art alternative type sound. Um, the Violent Femmes with their debut album sort of took things up a notch. But, you know, more more importantly, Nob, I think it's going to be noteworthy beyond the songs, beyond the band members, beyond the track by track, that one of the most, I would say, heartwarming uh, family reunions in uh, Saugerties, New York, in 1994, took place during this band's performance. Ah, yes. The little boy is what you're referring to. Indeed. And and we'll get into it 
Dude, there, there's a lot in the wonder stories here. I can't wait to get the wonder stories. I don't, I don't think there's ever been an episode that we've done on this podcast where I've been more excited about the wonder stories. It's kind of an underrated wonder stories episode. Not going to lie. Not going to lie. That was definitely part of the thinking, but you know, clearly it's going to be a very, very interesting record to, you know, get your take on this record is, has been through many different eras for those that are kind of in our generation in our, in our age range. And, you know, it, it seems like an album that, you know, truly has been around for almost all of our lives, but it's sort of played different roles at different times. But Socrates, New York was one of them and we'll get to it. But Hey, before we do any nerdy deets, any wonder stories, any track by track, you know how we do it, Craig around here, we're going to go round and round. Nubs, long play format, go. The new album is called Wednesdays from your favorite, Ryan Adams. Oh, boy. It's very good. We were off to such a good start, too. <laughs> you don't think the Violent Femmes were maybe a little influenced by Ryan Adams? Or I guess it'd be the other way around. <laughs> you don't think Ryan Adams would be a little, maybe a little influenced by the Violent Femmes, right? Kind of moody acoustic music it's possible yeah. Yeah. it's possible yep yeah the new album is wednesdays it's uh excellent uh, it's good to have ra back making sad bastard music once again so uh yeah was this a sad bastard effort from him yeah. or was this a rock rock and no nope. so this is the sad bastard effort. Well, I thought, this is i thought you down. didn't like his sad bastard music why is it on your round and round it's uh, typically not you know it's not what i would prefer but it's just been a while since we had an album and he's been through his troubles and everything. So it was just good to have anything back from him. And, and typically my buddy Peef, you know, listener and I talk about this all the time. Like the worse yeah, Peef. Yeah. yeah, totally. The worse that his life is, the better the music tends to be. So I think that the key is that if he's going through some turmoil there's always going to be some interesting music that comes out of it. And Wednesdays is no exception. It's, it's very good. It's very emotional and I'm digging it for sure. And so this is what you and Peef were talking about, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we really were no doubt about it. <laughs> Next would be a, uh, a new album by a band that's been around for a little bit. Red Fang or relapse records. The new album is called arrows. And I've been enjoying that quite a bit. Kind of a lot of like raw uptempo rock music, maybe a little bit of punkish sort of deal. But Red Fang is a very good band and good to see a new album from them. It's just good to see all these new records coming out. You know, it's during the, yeah. during the main pandemic year, not to be confused with the new pandemic year, we bands were kind of withholding new releases or deciding whether to, or whether not to. And I feel like we've had a good influx of things that have come out. So that's, that's been enjoyable. And then lastly would be kind of a, a 1990s, actually I think it's 1999 effort from Jethro Tull, which is the album jtoll.com found a, uh, out of print hmm. CD version of that album. And it's really good. It's kind of heavy and, you know, Tull in the nineties was doing a little bit more of a rock sort of deal and, uh, enjoyable. So that's what has been round and round for me T what has been spinning around for you? Very good, Nubs. Uh, listen, I've got three records, uh, two of which, uh, you know, you, you talked a little bit about uh, films 
last episode when we discussed uh, the the similarities between uh, My Bloody Valentine's Loveless and uh, 1980s Heaven's Gate, which was a great parallel. So Michael know, Cimino's I, Heaven's Gate. Michael Cimino's indeed. Yeah. Is, Did is, you is, run right out and watch the director's uh, cut of that? <laughs> the, the full the full three and a half hours. I I didn't. I didn't. Uh, but uh, you know, one of these times when I've got a lot of time on my hands. Um, but, but really this, you know, two uh, recent, I guess, more documentaries sort of inspired me to check out a couple of things. The first, it's, it's a, a, a band, I guess, in an in in effort called FFS, which is Franz Ferdinand and Sparks. This was uh, when the two bands sort of uh, collaborated. And part of what inspired this is just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my wife and I went and checked out the new Sparks documentary, which was playing uh, for a short period of time over at the Imagine Theater. So, you know, you get a nice couch, you know, a nice lazy boy and uh, settle in for a nice long documentary about this very unique act called Sparks, which is one of my favorites. We've talked about them a couple times here. And they did a collaboration with Franz Ferdinand uh, about eh, maybe this was 10 years ago. and. Uh, or maybe less. Five, it's like 2014, I think. Yeah. yeah, something like that. And uh, it's really good, really cool, and cool. Do you like this. the album too? You, I, we've never ta- we've never talked about this album. And, you know, I love Franz Ferdinand. Mm-hmm. I know you love Sparks. What What did you think of the record? Do you like it? I think it's cool. You know, I mean, there's a there's certainly a cool factor to it, more so than it being like insanely good. But uh, you know, I think they collaborated nicely, and, and to see a band like Franz Ferdinand who. I mean, it's not like they're young pups, but certainly they're of a different generation than Sparks, seeing that Sparks started in like the 60s. Um, it, it's cool to see a collaboration like that and kind of the uh, sort of a duality of uh, influences because, uh, you know, Sparks was able to kind of rub off some of their influence on Franz Ferdinand. And it seemed like uh, Franz Ferdinand was helping Sparks get to a, a little bit more of a place that was kind of modern at the time, which I, I thought was pretty cool. What Did you like it? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it was kind of a perfect marriage. I've always enjoyed the Franz Ferdinand, you know, the influence that Sparks has had on them. It's so clear, right? When you listen to them. Yeah. So yeah, I thought it was a, a, a nice way for, we've seen this in the past a little bit, like the, the Metallica Lou Reed thing was just so out there that it was so, <laughs> so weird, but did that one ever grow on you? Nope. And I gave it a really good shot. Yeah. Yeah. Never grew on me either. At first, I thought it was gonna be really cool, and I was just like, "Oh, this is too weird." Yeah, it's, but uh, <laughs> I thought this was cool. It was, it was. You could feel that kind of bouncing ideas off of each other, and like I said, I'm a huge Franz fan, so I, anything they do is kind of cool. Yeah, I agree. Cool, cool collaboration there. The second was influenced by something I just watched uh, about a week ago, and I know you and I chatted briefly about, which was the uh, Woodstock '99 documentary. Um, this is, uh, I think it was an HBO thing. It was the, the Bill Simmons uh, company that produced it. And, uh, it's pretty good. You know, it's, it's, uh, gives you kind of a good account of the event and sort of some of the circumstances of the time period that led to it. And, uh, the band that I think got kind of a bad rap that weekend. And, uh, we actually talked about them in a previous episode. That's Limp Biscuit. I I'm, I went with Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water, one of the greatest album titles maybe of all time. Um, but, uh, you know, great record from those guys. And the follow-up to the one we did, which was Significant Other. And the third was influenced by no film whatsoever. And uh, uh, I have uh, Amy Grant. 
and uh, doing a little heart in motion, which uh, for me, is just a great summer album. What can I say, buddy? Great winter album too, man. Yeah. (laughs) The first, the first side of heart in motion is about as good a side as you can have. I mean, it's just packed with outstanding songs. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, any side with that's what love is for. I mean, just, yeah. That's what love is for <laughs> to help it through it. Come on. That's, yeah, that's what a, love is for. I mean, well, from the get <laughs> or no, get it back to our senses. I mean, that's if that doesn't make you cry. Baby, that's, baby, that's love what love is, is for. What about good for me? You know, when I start to sing the blues, you are my dancing shoes. I think you, you could be, be so, so good, good for me. Um, and, do, then, do, and then do, every do, heartbeat do, is like, it's like an amazing like '90s pop song. I mean, I love every so heartbeat. Yeah, it's so good. It's written by Charlie Peacock. Did you know that? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Quite a talent. He uh, made a lot of money off that song. He made a lot of money off that song, and he made a couple really good records of his own in his Absolutely. own right. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know, let's get to uh, you know a, a record uh, that some have argued it was that they peaked too early. Uh, that. Uh, this is really the only work you need to check out from this entire band's catalog, which, believe it or not, still continues to this day after many twists and turns in this band's experience. And we will get into it. And Nubs, like I mentioned, we will also get to a family reunion in Socrates, New York. But first, let's introduce tonight's record with the Nerdy Dates. Done, dirt, cheap. Yeah. You want some dirty? Violent Femmes was released on April 13th, 1983. It was on Slash Records. This is early in the, uh, I guess, the short life of Slash Records when the label was on its own. It's a very interesting label that quickly kind of went bankrupt and got gobbled up in the mid 80s, but had built such prestige and really had some bands that it was carrying with it. That, you know, got picked up by Warner. It eventually got picked up by Reprise, but they wanted to keep the Slash name. It was a very unique situation within the record industry where in really just a matter of a couple of years, it was a really shitty business, you know, went bankrupt after just a handful of years, but was able to deliver some really, I mean, the A&R at this label was excellent. They were able to really capitalize on sort of what was, you know, forward thinking with many acts and, you know, Warner and reprise sort of kept the name and kept the branding uh, because they thought that it would create kind of a nice niche for them, even heading into well into the nineties. So it kind of started with the band germs, you know, which was uh, Pat smears, punk group, uh, their only record that was actually Slash's really first album and the band X, which is sort of another, punk act of the early 80s and you know so so it kind of started as this edgy punk label eventually they would add you know faith no more they would add failure they would add l7 misfits soul coughing so i mean this was a label that was kind of definitely you know front-footed and definitely a bit edgy and they put out you know the first few albums from tonight's band including this debut it's really noted as sort of the um one of the great pioneering efforts of post-punk 
and of alternative music. So, you know, I mean, this is 1983. This is well before, you know, this sort of thinking around alternative music or even new wave and some of these things still very early in that process, at least in the U.S. Some of these things were happening overseas, but, you know, very, very early in the game for this thinking around sort of prog pop or or new wave or what would eventually become known as alternative music. So this record is really known as one of the sort of early indicators of that. It wasn't released on CD until 1987, so it spent its first four years as a cassette and an LP. Uh, it took four years for the record to go gold. So, th- you know, this was not something that came on the scene and immediately, you know, set the world on fire. It was a little bit of a slow burner, but it had sold 9 million copies by 2005. So I think the longevity of this record, Nubs, is part of what makes it interesting. It, it wasn't one of those 80s records that came out and and just completely took the world by storm. But boy, over a few years, it was really able to build up you know, this, I feel like this album has had nine lives, you know, and it, it was able to kind of build up an audience that was probably a little bit more sort of underground at first and then became more mainstream and then became something that, you know, was looked at as this sort of early alternative darling. But it took a few years, but this thing eventually became a bit of a powerhouse as far as uh, the collections that it would appear within of many different vast audiences and sort of music appreciators, as well as, you know, noted as a great commercial success and an album that was pretty pioneering at the time. I think it's one of the first hipster albums. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Honestly, it's one of the first albums that became underground enough to be cool to like, but popular enough to be able to buy at a record store and hear on the radio and things like that. So I, I, I see this band as the kind of original hipster act, you know, pre-Nirvana, pre, pre the time where you wanted to make sure that your band was your band and that nobody else would hear them, <laughs> yet they were accessible enough to find out about them, you know, because this is far before the internet allowed us to just find out about every band and every song ever known to man. So I align it very much with that. I think that what one of the things that stands out about it, maybe you're going to get to this in the nerdy deets is it's stunningly short. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally over before you even know it. It must run something like 35 minutes long because it's just, you know, it comes, it goes very quickly. And I think that that probably helped it with the hipsters because it, it's a very short attention span album. You were off by a minute, 15 seconds, now 36, 15, but yeah, yeah, that's, it's pretty quick. And it? it is, it is. And, and not just in time, but it's just in pace. I mean, it just yeah, yeah. moves along, you know, so much. And so it had a couple of interesting things going for it. I, I think iconic cover art is part of it as well. The, the name of the band mixed with this image of this, you know, this girl kind of gazing through a window is. You know, that's something that I think became part of the pop culture lexicon at the time. So yeah, it had a lot going for it, but it's extraordinary. It's a lot like when we talked about Kate Bush, Hounds of Love. The extraordinary thing is, you know, when it came out, most of our relationship with this album comes from a defined couple year part of our life. This album was 10 years old at that time. It wasn't <laughs> right. new, right? but it felt like it was, you know, and that, that the timelessness piece uh, certainly has given it a place in pop culture history for sure. 
Yeah. If it was an album that had nine lives, I mean, we, even when we, by the time we discovered it, it was already on its like third live, you know? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it's been very, by the way, the, the girl you're talking about on the cover turns out uh, her name is Billy Joe Campbell. She was three years old and she and her mom were walking down the street in LA and apparently somebody approached them and said, do you want to be on an album cover? Do you have 10 minutes to do a photo shoot and whatever? And and they did. I guess they told her that there were animals in the building. So she's peering in there looking for the animals. And all they were trying to do is trying to get a good picture. And I guess she was pissed off that there weren't. Any. I mean, I know if I told my kids there were animals in a house and they looked and there weren't, they'd be pissed. You know, so can't blame her. Right. Um, this thing is really acclaimed uh, in terms of, you know, how it gets sort of rated and ranked. I mean, it was number 21 in the best albums of the 80s by Slant. It was 974 on the all-time top 1,000 albums. That's from the Encyclopedia of Popular Music. Uh, Pop Matters put it on the 12 essential alt-rock albums of the 80s. I mean, this thing is definitely noted as the pioneering effort for alternative music. These are a bunch of guys from Milwaukee. So this is a Midwest outfit. This isn't something that you know, came from um, New York City, which you may have uh, guessed, or LA or whatever. This is, you know, some dudes in the middle of the country who actually they recorded the album at Lake Geneva. So it sounds like, you know, for the most part, born and bred uh, Wisconsinites, cheeseheads, if you will. Uh, and uh, Gordon Gano, who we'll talk about a bunch, you know, wrote these songs while he was in high school. You can kind of tell it has a little bit of that sort of snot nosedness to it um which is <laughs> a little of, bit which is, <laughs> yeah which is part of its charm so i i think that's part of you know the the sort of juvenile nature of the record is part of its charm i think because it's authentic you know this is not this was not a 25 year old trying to write and sound like an 18 year old this is somebody who actually wrote these songs when he was 18 It'll be interesting to get your take. You know, a lot of people call the violent femmes super innovative and super ahead of their time and these type of things. But truth be told, there's a band called the Modern Lovers that um, some people are familiar with. And frankly, some people aren't. This is Jonathan Richmond's project. And notably in the band was also Jerry Harrison, who we've talked about a bunch as, as a producer on the old podcast here as well as obviously a member of the Talking Heads, which is kind of what more people probably know him for. And then David Robinson, who eventually became the drummer of the Cars, they were in this band called Modern Lovers, and they sort of started this artsy, sort of silly, um, tongue-in-cheek, juvenile, you know, sort of (laughs) alt approach to things. And they started this years before this Violent Femmes record. And so a lot of people say, you know, hey, you know, Violent Femmes started this sound and innovated it. But a lot of uh, purists kind of say, nah, that was modern lover sound and a lot of Velvet Underground stuff in there. And, you know, this folk alt thing was already sort of around a little bit. Now, say what you will. The Femmes kind of took this sound, scaled it down a little bit, simplified it a little bit and clearly turned it into something that's a bit more pop oriented and a bit more commercially oriented. But, you know, sometimes nubs, uh, it could be argued that these guys get uh, more credit than they deserve for this sound that they're often tagged with being uh, very much innovators of. But, you know, you can't deny it that these guys did bring something new and different to the table here in 1983. <laughs> we'll get into it so much in the track by track. I mean, yeah, a lot of thoughts, a lot of, of opinions, but I, it does strike me as 
a, a sort of a musical history trend that a band who really doesn't play its instruments very well becomes post something or punk something or alternative something versus just sort of, you know, a band that doesn't play his instruments very well, but have some artistic vision and became very lucky to get rich and famous, which is sort of how I view a lot of these bands. I mean, modern lovers did have a little bit more of a tongue in cheek sense of humor to what they did. And violent femmes, you had to, you know, some people maybe picked up on that. Some people didn't. And you and I can dispute on whether that existed to the point where it was enjoyable or not. So I don't know, dude, I just, I just want to get into the track by track so bad. So <laughs> well, my modern lovers in some ways, a lot of people thought were a performance piece, almost a comedy piece in a yeah, way. And, yeah. and, you know, I don't think the violent femmes were doing comedy. That's for sure. You know, the, the way they were sort of discovered is sort of a storybook, you know, local band deal. They were, they were sort of jamming with their acoustic and their drum and their acoustic bass and just a, sort of their normal setup on a street corner right near the Oriental Theater in downtown Milwaukee. And the Pretenders were playing that night. And Chrissy Hind like literally invited them to play a short set after the opening act that night. She just thought that they were super cool. And, you know, it was like, hey, guys, why don't you just plug in and, you know, or I guess they didn't really need to plug in, mic your acoustic stuff. and and. uh get up there and play a couple songs, you know, before we come out and they did. And sort of the rest is history. It's a storybook, incredible thing. I mean, you, you dream about that happening. That actually happened to these guys. And who were these guys? These guys were Gordon Gano, who wrote all the songs for this record. <laughs> a very interesting dude. We'll probably talk a little bit more about him. Uh, Brian Ritchie, who incredibly important to this record, played the bass. Without some of the bass work on, on this record, it would not be this record. Uh, I think that's pretty evident. And then Victor DiLorenzo, who uh, obviously was the drummer, uh, which on this particular album pretty much meant a snare drum and some brushes. Um, was there anything else? I think, I think that was pretty much it, right? For basically every song on here. So it's not an album that's riddled with low end nub or has a lot of punch to it, at least from a... Uh, drumming standpoint so that's part of why the uh you know the bass guitar from from brian ritchie became you know so important after this the band had a really weird interesting progression they they came out with a second record that was this kind of odd experimental like no interest in continued commercialism thing it was a christian album gordon gano was a big time christian his father uh, was a Baptist preacher artist type, and and he was very into the faith, and you know it actually caused a lot of dissension within the band. You know, it seemed like Gordon versus the other two guys in many ways, but you know, like it or not, Gordon brought all the songs on the first album and developed a decent amount of say in terms of the direction that things went. This album has now been lauded by many as sort of an alt country uh, pioneering record and all that. I, I haven't listened to it much. Probably will check it out because it is very interesting. And then they went on to make a couple other albums that sort of got back to some of their pop progression. But by that point, I think a lot of people considered this debut album to be their best work and, you know, wanted to sort of um, leave it at that. 
There was a lawsuit within the band. Uh, Gordon Gano used Blister in the Sun on a Wendy's commercial in uh, 2007, and uh, Brian Ritchie sued him. Now, Brian Ritchie had no case because Gano had the publishing rights. Warner's was the label. There was nothing the band could do about it. They broke up in 2009, really, because of the tension caused by this lawsuit. But a festival brought them back together in 2013, that being Coachella. There must be a thing with these guys doing big festivals, eh? And they've been together ever since. So it's a interesting, kind of odd, clunky, but functional story of this band and how they've you know, sort of been able to weirdly keep it together and stay somewhat on the same page. They've had trouble keeping the same band members over time. Uh, and DiLorenzo actually hasn't been in the band since, you know, early 90s when he quit. But uh They've kind of uh, taken some twists and turns, but at the end of the day have developed some uh, longevity. And I guess there's always something to be said for that. Nub, let's get to the Wonder Stories, buddy. Talk to me, Goose. What's, uh, what do you got today on... The Violent Femmes and how you came about to know who they are and what they do. Well, well let's do one of those kind of joint wonder stories, if that's okay. Because, <laughs> sure. you know, we're, we're certainly going to have a similar tale in terms of the, <laughs> the true memory of this band. But, but I will sure. say this. This band reminds me probably more than any other group of middle school. And the reason why is because Middle school is, was a pretty important time for both of us. I think it's when we found our passion for music, playing it, listening to it, shopping for it, going to see it live. It was like a pivotal time for us. And I look back at my middle school time as this wonderful phase, which I have found as very rare. You know, most people look back at their middle school days and it was awful and you know, my body was changing and things were weird and da da da. And I get it. But for me, it was like this awesome time. I loved middle school. I loved just <laughs> discovering everything and being curious about everything. I'm glad you did. I know it's super it was, rare. I know it was awful for me. Terrible. <laughs> but this, there's two kind of memories. One is we we were friends with a lot of music people. You know, that was kind of the crowd that we found in middle school. Thankfully, this song would constantly be played at parties and it was always like lights off and you know during the breakdown you gotta you know lower yourself to the ground and then when it comes back in everybody explodes and that that was the same thing at middle school dances this blister in the sun was always played at middle school dances and everybody would dance in their circles and and bring it down when it came down and then bring it up when it came up and i just remember that so vividly so vividly and it's probably some of the warmer memories I have about these songs is, is I was hearing them a lot during middle school and during some of these fun times. As time went on, th- these songs would take on a different connotation, but none greater than what you should share <laughs> with our listeners about <laughs> our family vacation to Woodstock 94 and one of the most important family reunions. <laughs> so, um, so before I get to the story of, you know, when my name was announced from the main stage at Woodstock 94 in front of 400,000 people, 
How many people do you think were actually there? It was always like some people said there were like a hundred thousand and some people said there were like half a million, like was maybe somewhere in the middle. Was that kind of where we netted out there? Well, that was on the Friday night. We were lucky to be there on Friday. And so a lot of people poured in on Saturday, but without question, it was, it was at least a couple hundred thousand people. It was packed. So before I get to that, I just, the one thing I do want to note about this record and and mostly the, the cassette tape is and we've talked a couple times about not so much with our older brother because our older brother was into some different stuff he was like into metal and uh, rap and stuff which is all great but um so i guess i'll say our friends older siblings you know we had a lot of buddies that had older siblings and it you know one of the things you and i always like to do was like sneak into their older siblings rooms and look at their like music collection you know, because we were always sort of fascinated. I remember we, when we, in the Verve Pipe episode, we talked about TJ, we talked about his older sister and having sort of, you know, Depeche Mode stuff and Eurasia stuff and a lot of things that were sort of, you know, coming out of that camp. And then, you know, you'd go to another buddy's house and look at their, uh, you know, older siblings music collection and lots of college rock and these type of things. This Violent Femmes record seemed like it was in every single older siblings collection. So you could tell that even at this time, which would have been, you know, sort of, you know, late 80s, early 90s, that this was big for, you know, high school people at the time and and college students at the time. You know, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, sort of like our Under the Table and Dreaming, you know, or one of those records that was sort of a college staple, you know, Steve Miller Band's Greatest Hits or whatever it may be. You know, the Violent Femmes was that for many. So I, I know that there are certainly interesting memories for us with this cassette tape and with this record. But I think with even those that were a handful of years older, um, you know, this was a record that was, that was pretty important and, and kind of a staple at that stage in life. So uh, fast forward to 1994. And, uh, you know, I think we've mentioned it briefly a couple of times, Nub, that, uh, you know, we uh, happened to uh, have had a really, really cool mom who supported us musically um, in so many ways, you know, made sure that we always had instruments and places to jam and areas in the house where we could play loud and, you know, probably drive her crazy half the time and took us to a ton of like, not just concerts, but like really cool concerts at like really cool places, you know, that many parents at that age wouldn't have taken their kids to, but we were just very fortunate to have a mom that kind of exposed us to a lot of these type of things. And, and the ultimate example of that was when we, you know, probably begged her or bribed her in some ways, God only knows how to uh, pack up the car and drive us to Woodstock 94. So this was obviously that the peaceful, the peaceful Woodstock, the non fire Woodstock. Yeah. Then and then no burning things. And son of a bitch, we loaded up the car and, and, uh, and she drove us, the three of us, and we went to Woodstock and, you know, we got there on that first day and, you know, it was before the, the rain had really started. It was before it got super muddy and gross and, you know, we got there and, and so we would have been 14 years old at the time. This is 1994. And real quick too, do you remember that like the process of, of getting there? I mean, we drove to. New York, the Socrates area or whatever. But do you recall like what we had to go through to get on the bus? Oh yeah. I mean, it was awful. Remember like, we <laughs> waited for hours Yeah, and yeah. it was, it was so hot. It was yeah. hot as hell. And I, I don't know the exact time, but I want to say that we waited in a line outside for 
three or four hours to get onto this bus. It was, it was, and then the bust you over to the campsite, which is by the stages and the music. But I yeah. just, I remember that endless wait oh, yeah. to get on those buses. Yeah. Getting on the bus to go over to the site sucked. I mean, the whole thing was just, I mean, you know, part of the Woodstock charm, I think were, was it's poor logistics, which in 1994 they got away with. And in 1999 certainly sort of bit him in the ass, but so we arrive on the site and it's just, I mean, it's massive. I mean, it's massive. There are hundreds and thousands of people. It's the, the sprawling nature of it was just, you know, so wide and, you know, I'm not good at like uh, acreage and all those things, but this is a massive, massive site where you basically have to find a place to set up a tent and camp. Now at age 14, apparently I was the, like the biggest shithead in the universe because we're setting up, well, you, Nubs and, my, and our mom are setting up the tent. And I don't know why, but I just decided to wander off because what could go wrong, you know? So, uh, so I wander off and, you know, the band live was playing pretty soon. And, uh, you know, a couple other bands that I was really looking forward to seeing because it was, these were the daytime sets. And so I, you know, maybe I just didn't feel like helping with the tent or something, but I just kind of took off. You know, started walking around. Just to clarify, you did not feel like helping with the tent. You know, I mean, the, we literally turned around and everyone has to understand what this was like. It was just the three of us there. We were both 14 years old. Yeah. And and my mom and I turn around and you are gone. Just gone. Just gone. You know? And and I think what I remember is I really wanted to see live. It was like live's gonna start in like a half hour. And if I'm not there to see them, then this whole thing is a big waste of time, you know. And I was just a punk. What can I say? So, um, so, so I take off, you know, I walk over to the main stage and I'm kind of hanging out and, you know, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I guess I was just thinking that, you know, they would find me eventually or something. And, and so I remember live played and, uh, and then, uh, who else was on the, on the docket that day? There was like, uh, King's X. Yeah. That first was later time, in the night. I saw King's X, yeah. Later in the night was King's X and collective soul. And, uh, I mean, it was, the night was incredible. It was King's X, Collective Soul, and then Candlebox. Yeah. And in then, a row, I was like in heaven. I mean, yeah, was, totally. So, you know, um, an hour goes by and live finishes their set. And then another hour goes by. Then another band goes up. Then another band goes up. And like, next thing you know, it's like starting to get dark. And there were no, uh, there were no cell phones, obviously. There was no way of getting a hold of each other. And when that place got dark, I mean, there were no signs or anything. It was just this wide open, like forest, basically, uh, where the campsites were. And, you know, <laughs> I, um, I remember kind of eventually starting to get a little worried, even me at age 14, which should have worried about more, but didn't. It was like, okay, like I have no idea where to find these guys. Again, this was before the days where you could make contact with each other. So a couple more bands go up. It starts to get pit, like totally dark. And now you're getting into the last couple bands of the night. Well, you know, eventually it was definitely between King's X and somebody. Maybe it was between King's X and Candlebox. So it was in between bands and I'm standing there just kind of starting to think like, hmm, like, I wonder how I'm going to find nubs and find my mom and you know, find the tent and have somewhere to sleep. And, you know, hopefully this will all just take care of itself. And, you know, I think I had, by that point, I was like talking to a couple of people around me and whatever, just trying to be cool and whatever. Great, great to hear. Because meanwhile, 
my mom and I are like freaking out. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's like, we're never going to see T again. Yeah. <laughs> like he's gone. He will never come home again. He's lost in a sea of, you know, 200,000 people in Socrates, New York. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, there are these announcements going on in between um, bands. And all of a sudden I hear this, this guy with this kind of funny voice and he was making announcements and all of a sudden he just goes, okay. And one more thing, everybody. There's this little boy, Chris, who is missing from his family. If you can hear this little Chris, go meet at the merchandise tent or whatever. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> like, like, I just got announced at Woodstock. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I probably I think I was cracking up. I was like, what a trip. You know, they just announced my name. Now, meanwhile, what I should have been thinking is, thank God. You know, let me go meet Nubs and and I got lucky. And I wasn't even I was like, how the hell did they do that? I was just pumped that they announced my name from the main stage at Woodstock. You, you yeah. have no idea how much we had to beg this guy yeah. to get a stage announcement. I mean, cause think about it, you know, to them we were just you were just an ant in the in the ant farm. I mean, yeah. just, you know, and we were just we were desperate. So we started saying we lied to the guy. We started saying things like you know, he's, he's six years old. He's lost and we can't, I mean, we, we, we actually had to make a case for why this needed to be announced. It we was like destroying the, the music, but we were like really concerned. It was like the stupidest thing I've ever done. I mean, like it was so stupid and you know, but you know, Hey, I, I guess I figured everything would work out in the end and it did. So I, I remember walking over and it, and it took forever. This was not like, you know, you promenade over to the merch tent. Like this, it took me like a half hour, 45 minutes to just get to you guys. Cause you sort of had to like go around. I mean, it was a whole thing. And by that point I was up, I had gotten myself up close, sort of close ish to the stage, you know? And so I remember by that point, the violent femmes had just started. And what was funny about the violent femmes at Woodstock was, you know, we were so excited to see Candlebox and King's X and Collective Soul and these guys. I remember even in 1994, the violent femmes were like the old guys, you know, it's like, what are these guys doing here? You know, but boy, you know, and so, so we reunited like right as the violent femmes had started their set. And I remember it was the band that we were probably the least interested in, in, in that entire night. And probably that entire two days we were there, we ended up leaving a little bit early because the rain came and the mud came and our mom's purse got stolen. Our mom's purse got stolen. <laughs> Our pets' heads were falling off. We just, <laughs> we were literally stuck in Woodstock with no money, no credit cards. Yeah. Like it, it, was, that, it was a disaster. It was a real beauty. We were the next, That all happened on later on Saturday. Yeah. I think we were like begging for food at one point, but yeah, uh, yeah. so, so we did reunite and the violent times had just started. Now I do remember, I remember thinking, you know, man, they're, they're kind of old, aren't they? I mean, shoot, their album was I mean, knobs 10 years old at that point. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Know, right. I mean, these guys were in their like thirties. Yeah. You know? thought, yeah. What a bunch of geezers, you know, but I do remember them really like bringing the house. I mean, people were pumped to see this band and, and it was smart to have them. There it was a good demographic. It was a lot of, you know, people in their twenties that had sort of, you know, really utilized this album in high school and college. And it was a very strong reception. And I remember being sort of startled by that. It was like, you know, I knew these guys were cool. I knew Blister in the Sun. I knew whatever. But you could really sense the reception 
to this band. And this was at the height of grunge and rock at their peak. And this band gets up here and kind of starts playing their folky alt, you know, pop punk stuff. And I remember there being a huge reception to it. So it was kind of an interesting night, but, uh, but certainly set the stage for a classic family reunion, didn't it, Nub? I, dude, I got to admit, the, the biggest thing I remember about the Violent Femmes set was like, I was just so pissed at you. <laughs> I was so <laughs> mad. It was like, you know, we get there and like Friday night was like, that was like my night. And, and it was like, I spent the whole time wondering if I was ever going to see my twin brother again. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was. And I remember disconnecting for just long enough to, cause I was really into King's X at that point, just long enough to enjoy that set. But then even after that, it was like this constant struggle of trying to enjoy the experience, but also, you know, not, not having a clue how you were going to find us again. Cause like you finding our tent would have been like finding a needle in a haystack. I don't think you would have been able, been able to make your way. No to chance. The campsite and find our tent. There's no chance in the dark. I would have found you guys. I mean, just none, none. I, I would love to, uh, I think it'd be a great film or a book on what, what would have happened to you that night. <laughs> and I guarantee you, you would have found some like sick, amazing party. Yeah. You know, yeah. you probably would have fallen in love three times during the night. Probably would have turned in my V card that night. <laughs> you very well could have, man. <laughs> it would have been quite the story. You know, you probably would have engaged in some sort of mind altering chemical. Oh, and sure, sure. I mean, I just can't imagine what would have happened to you if you would have had this whole lost evening at Woodstock <laughs> all night, you know? Yeah, I should, I should really add to the story a little bit with, you know, some things that actually didn't happen. But it was incredibly stupid, but very, very memorable. And Nubs, I officially, was it, 27 years later? Um, I apologize. I'm sorry. Th- thanks, man. But hey, listen, you still got to see your favorite band, King's X, and we had a, just a wonderful reunion. And listen, I, I think it brought us closer. I really do. Even though you probably <laughs> uh, wanted to uh, you know, kick me in the nads uh, immediately upon and, seeing And me. who would have thought at that moment that 24 hours later, we would be back in the car on the way home, <laughs> broke, <laughs> literally begging a motel to let us stay there and missing... Red Hot Chili Peppers, Peter Gabriel, Porno for Pyros. Nine Inch Nails. I mean, we missed all of it on Sunday. And we missed the Green Day, the, the infamous mud fight with the Green Day. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, totally. we're not, when they go into we're not going to take it. Such a yeah, great. Totally. Yeah. I'm more pissed about missing that in person than I am anything else, you know, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was quite the deal on the deal there for us. Hey, Nub, I uh, I'm really looking forward to the track by track here and getting your thoughts on this debut record. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go, T. Well, then let's go. So, Nub, you know, one of the things that's kind of interesting about this, um, when we did the Kate Bush episode, I remember declaring that I didn't have this record in my library, you know, either digital or or CD was the first time. And I didn't even realize it until we started here tonight. I don't own this in my library. (laughs) So I don't really. Yeah. You you don't own this. I I always say you had it on. Well, you had it on CD back in the day, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, at some point, I'm sure I had the cassette or had the CD. But yeah, I, I was. 
I pulled, it was like, I just pulled it up, assuming it was there because I do have a ridiculous digital library and, and it's not there, but through the magic of streaming and these sorts of things, you know, able to work it out. But yeah, isn't that a little surprising? That is surprising. I'm surprised you don't have it like on a reissued vinyl too. Cause you, you, you have, your collection is your vinyl collection. has tons of reissues in it. Well, we'll see, buddy. We'll see where it lands when we do the final cut. But first, <laughs> let's kick things off with a song that, you know, one or two people know, and that is uh, Blister in the Sun. Don't even know why my girlfriend, she's at the end. She is starting to cry. Let me go on. Like I blister in the sun. Let me go on. Big hands, I know you're the one. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what you really say about this song uh because it's you know been heard a few times it's um it's a legendary uh, uh it's sort of an anthem you know from the early 80s and and obviously one that brings forth uh, a, a lot of pop elements a lot of sort of you know almost kind of rockabilly type elements it's very unique it it must have hit people right over the head right away that they were getting something very different here because you can sense immediately it's minimalism and and for a song to be this iconic and be so minimalist has got to be rare you know it's got to be rare. there's nothing grand about it there's nothing layered about it but it's an iconic song and, and one that uh obviously gets this album off to a start that's uh extremely memorable you know so say what you will about it if it's overplayed overdone if you're sick of it it's a pretty special opening track for from an album that uh, was iconic in of itself, but a lot of it had to do with this opening track. I, I think it's in a category of three songs. Uh, first of all, I think the precedent for Blister in the Sun is Louie Louie, right? Just this, you know, basic rhythm that you can do anything on top of it, make it work, right? And then the sun of that is blister in the sun. Kaka, kaka. It's a melody so good that you don't even need to design a vocal melody on top of it, right? You just sing that. I mean, that's all he did, right? Yeah. And to me, that the third part in the trilogy, if you will, is a little ditty that goes. And in all three cases, you've just got these iconic melodies that you could do just about anything with. You just like that because it's played on third down at the horseshoe. Well, I do. I do like that aspect of it. But if you think about it, all three of these songs are stadium songs. They are. They're all played in stadiums. They all almost bring on an involuntary response from the crowd. I mean, you play blister in the sun in a, an arena of any sport or any entertainment and people are going to hit the right. I mean, it's just, everybody knows it. And that to me is, is a little bit of the magic of the song. Now I never near need to hear this song again. Right. <laughs> I mean, I really don't, it, you can throw it into that category, but you have to really respect the fact that, you know, some dude came up with this and originated it. A high school dude. Right. Yeah. Which so, is kind of part, you know, I said it sort of from the onset, it's kind of part of what's lovable about the the record is it is genuine in that way. It's juvenile. Yeah. Well, that doesn't mean like in a bad way. That just means 
this is a kid in his bedroom, right? You know, making up a few songs. And next thing you know, it, it really did kind of set things on fire, you know, and certainly got this record off to a, a pretty blazing start. Blistering start, if you will. Blistering. Blistering. Look at you. I see what you did. I see what you did. I bet Gordon Gano would, would have left his, his family at Woodstock 94 when he was 14. Well, yeah, yeah, I I think he probably would have, you know, actually he probably wasn't that much of a, of a dick, you know, but, uh, you know, so, so we, (laughs) we, we get off to a blistering start and then we, we send it off in track two with a kiss, a little bit, (laughs) a little kiss, little little bit, right? Onions, little little bit of raftery there. Uh, this is track two. And obviously the, the sort of this, this quadrant of classics that sort of, you know, takes you through side one of this record continues here with kiss off. For my headaches and five, five, five for my lonely and six, six, six for my sorrow and seven, seven for no, no, no tomorrow and eight, eight, I forget what eight was for, but nine, nine, nine for lost God, ten, 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 ten for everything, 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 everything. So Nubsy, you know, he forgot what eight was for. Um, do you know what eight was for? I don't I know what eight was for. I don't. I don't. I don't either. I forgot. So, you know, what you get here in these first few tracks obviously is, you know, and I, it's really throughout the whole album, but certainly on these first few, every song kind of has a moment, you know, to your point, it's the clap clap on blister in the sun. You know, here it's, you know, the one for my loneliness, two for my sorrow. I mean, you know, I forgot what eight was for. I mean, this is, you know, anybody can recite that. I mean, how many parties um, did people sort of yell that out? So it, Gordon, with a real gift on this record of not just creating songs, but creating moments. And every song seems to sort of have one uh, in a way. And, and obviously that's the, the classic part of Kiss Off. But again, I'll use the word iconic. These are moments within these songs that make them not just songs, but but make them memorable and make them fairly iconic and again it's an acoustic guitar a guy with a snare drum and brushes and then a guy wailing away on the acoustic bass which by the way totally rips on this song just like it does throughout the entire album uh but you know nub at this point it's like okay i'm hearing something who cares if it's you know how innovative it is or if there are modern lovers rip off or not this is something that's really you know getting you off to a hot start here i never thought about modern lovers but that would have been uh, pretty impressive for a 13 year old to even know who they were, which I didn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know who they were until I was like 30. So, you know, yeah, exactly. But, but I did think a lot about velvet underground. Cause at that point I was familiar. And I, I remember my early experience with the velvets was kind of like my later experience with the velvets, which is like most of the time I listened to it and I'm like, am I supposed to like this or <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like it's an, it's an art piece, you know, it's an art piece, which, you know, which obviously we're fine with. I mean, I'm, I'm completely fine with the avant-garde, but I also want to see some example of skill, you know, and, and, and what's going on here is such a Lou Reed borrow, you know, yeah. it's like, I mean, yeah. he's singing like Reed. Um, he's written, in that vintage rock and roll way, because Lou Reed made some incredible, you know, kind of atmospheric stuff like the Berlin album and stuff, but his, his, he would always revert back to the, like the rock and roll thing, sweet Jane. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's such a nod to that, you know, to your point of rockabilly. Yep. And so I, I, 
yeah, you know, Velvet Underground is something you're supposed to like. And most of the time I don't, I kind of put this in that category. You know, it's like this song is so many people love it. And again, junior high party sort of deal, but it just sounds like kind of a cheap velvet ripoff. And if it was ripping off something I really love, maybe I'd dig it a little bit more, but, but I do hear what you're saying about the sections. I mean, he was kind of a master of, trying to put a section in each song that was sort of a sing-along deal or an, or, or an interaction sort of deal, you know? Yeah. I mean, they, you know, these are special moments within these. Songs. I don't know if you, you know, if that's intentional or you know, if that's just the way it came about, but, but certainly, you know, there, there was that element to this, you know, it's amazing how, you know, with just a snare drum with brushes, how much the, the sort of beats become important here. It's not really a backbeat so much. And it's certainly there's, there's really no low end or bottom end to it, but, you know, when you look at Blister in the Sun and Kiss Off, uh, the percussion is very, very important to both. Not as important here on track three, but you certainly get really your memorable moment here in the chorus with the main hook on Please Do Not Go. What can I do? I fall down dead. You never see the tears I cry. So I think it's probably an appropriate time to just really touch on, you know, Brian Ritchie's bass work because, you know, clearly it provides a really unique layer and sort of a harmony layer to this. It's hard to tell, you know, what sort of parts Gordon, Gordon was obviously the primary songwriter, but I don't know if he came up with the bass parts or Ritchie really contributed those on his own, but they're super important to these songs. And that's one of the things if this didn't have the bass work that it has, it sure as hell wouldn't be the album that it is. And that's evident even on a song like this, that's a little bit more draggy and a little bit more, you know, really stripped down and minimal minimalist with the exception of the vocal harmonies. But one of the many, you know, times in getting through this record where I would note that, uh, that the, the contributions from that acoustic bass and he plays really hard and he plays some really cool parts, but on please do not go. I think it's imperative uh, that the bass really kind of makes the song, you know, cook. And in many ways makes the song really memorable, even with a pretty catchy chorus line. I don't want to start saying the guy's Charles Mingus or anything, you know, but it is the, the musicality that's there. I mean, in terms of the percussion, you know, charming, but, Nothing that a musician is going to go, oh, that's really cool. What Gordon's doing is, you know, to our point earlier, is is there in its signature, but it's also not all that unique. So I I do like the, is that a lot of stand-up bass that he's playing or is it just an acoustic bass? Guitar? No, he's just playing acoustic bass. Is it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's cool. It's got a nice tone and it stands out in the mix. That's one thing I do like about the minimal aspect of this is that the bass really pops through and it needs to. Because yeah. neither of the other instruments are doing anything all that interesting. But I, I do think this track is one of the highlights of the bass work for sure. So I, I'm glad you pointed that out. But, you know, he, he's, he's probably the most skilled in the band, but I'm not sure if that's a super high bar. Oh, it's not a super high bar. But I'll <laughs> tell you what, as far as, you know, first four tracks on an album that many, many would consider classic. You know, I don't know if you get as strong of kind of a, I mean, makes up the majority of, of side one here with four sort of more memorable tracks that contribute toward 
a very memorable album for many. And that sort of rounds out here with track four, which again has its own iconic moment within the song. And that one happens to come here on track four within the song Add It Up. Okay, and then Gordon starts, starts dropping f bombs there, which you know at this at this time that was that was pushing the envelope a bit. You weren't getting a lot of that here in 1983 um, on a record like this. We just got done talking about bass work. I mean, that's that's real skill right there. I mean, that's you know Richie was a damn good player, and uh, um, you know that's pretty evident on that section there and added up. And again, something that really brings, I think, to your point. A lot of musicality to it. So this is more of kind of a straightforward, you know, kind of hard charging tune from these guys. A little bit more edgy, obviously, um, with the uh, lyrics and with sort of the overall tone of the song. But, you know, added up, certainly one that a lot of people uh, recall and remember and, and love about this record as we kind of round out side A. I do like the the bass kind of... Um... Are those slides? Is that like, is he doing a number of those? It just seems like it's a lot of up and down the neck and kind of. Yeah. He's kind of playing a bunch of scales in different spots. I mean, it's, it's skillful what he's doing, you know, and, and to make it punchy and, and he's obviously plays an acoustic bass with a lot of tone. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty good stuff he's doing. It's got a little bit of like a Zeppelin three sort of stomp to it. You know, I kind of like the, the chugging aspect of this track and they go for that in some other areas of the album. But uh, when they go kind of up-tempo and actually do sound like a punk thing, then you can buy into that post-punk classification or or, or genre or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, I think it's better when they do that in some ways than when they're sort of sitting more back on the beat. So I do like when they're a bit on top of it. Track five kind of calms things down a little. And after those four, you can use a little cool off with Confessions. Now, this is just, you know, velvets all the way, right? I mean, you know, whenever Lou Reed kind of brought something that had some dynamics to it, had some twists and turns, but it was a little bit more sort of mid to slow tempo uh, with a lot of those breaks and a lot of that guitar tremolo and those things going on. I mean, this is. This is straight up velvet. So, you know, some cool moments within it. Uh, I think it's a good way to kind of round out the side after you basically start off with four songs that probably somebody at Slash knew were going to be hits. The, the juxtaposition of the screaming on top of these more loose acoustical things is it's interesting, you know, for sure. But it's also a little harsh on the ears. You know, I, he doesn't have a particularly great scream. No, you know, you know no. He doesn't have a Roger Daltrey sort of howl to him. So it's a little abrasive. Now, I remember this was the point of the album as a kid where I was really confused. You know, it's just like, <laughs> this doesn't sound like Blister in the Sun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, I think it brings you down a little bit there uh, again to, to round out the side. Flip it over and go to track six with Prove My Love. 
kind of a cool breakdown there, actually, where you get some kind of neat, I wouldn't call it terribly skillful to your point, but some neat guitar work, some neat, you know, sort of bass work and a lot of throwback here. Nub, you know, a lot of sort of throwback to something that's a little bit more almost rockability in a way, something that's stripped down, you know, things that you even heard like John Spencer Blues Explosion and some of those acts later on that were more throwback acts kind of getting back to. Uh, so it's it's stripped down. Obviously, Prove My Love has an electric guitar, which is, you know, pretty unique to this record. But you know, I think it's kind of a good way to get, you know, side two off to a start that isn't just the same formula. It's it's almost like when Dave Matthews pulled out the electric guitar on on Crash or on Every Day, you were like, huh? It's almost kind of a welcomed layer to get a little bit of uh, of plug-in uh, on Prove My Love. But uh, what do you think of this one? Well, and you, that's the thing, man. I'm glad you brought up Spencer because. To me, that could have brought this band just some more oomph would be to plug in more and be a little louder and, and do a little bit more than the snare drum. I mean, the snare drum thing's funny. It, like, it, that's the way I see it after yeah. long enough, you know, just the dude with the snare drum, like, and he'd like stand up and play it. It was a super minimal thing. Well, and I remember at Woodstock, like there were some songs because, you know, that, at that point they had a catalog, right? And there were some songs where he was on a full kit. Oh, and, there? Okay. Yeah. And that, but then for the old stuff, he would walk out to the front of the stage with just the snare and the brushes. It was kind of cool. It was like when they played their older stuff, particularly the songs off this record, he would come out and sort of play the Femmes trademark, you know, single snare drum. But, but he was also trading off between that and a drum set, which kind of made it sort of a neat set in a way. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't remember that because too busy crying. Think I was never going to see my brother again. No. So, <laughs> well, it, actually, by that, by that point of the, of the night, you, I, we had reunited and you were probably just so pissed at me. You couldn't really enjoy this band. I was like super pissed and really tired and really hungry. <laughs> I, do, I, remember <laughs> that. I was like super hungry. Yeah. Tra- angry. I was angry. <laughs> Track seven is promise. Yeah, baby. Yeah. No, this, no, I love this song. Yeah. Th- this to me sounds really post-punk. You know, this is really, I think, what you're getting down into when you look at kind of the, the attitude of the song. Certainly there's a there's a, a bit of a um, you know, electric guitar chop layer there, which is which is nice, kind of adds some nice bite to it. Um, but this one to me sort of pulls together all those elements of post-punk, alt-punk kind of shelves the folky thing for a little bit and, you know, sort of jams. You know, what's funny. So you say post-punk, you know what I had written down? Hmm. Two words, rolling stones. Oh, okay. That sounds like, T, have you ever heard the first Rolling Stones album? It's called England's newest hit makers or something like that. Oh yeah, sure. Really early, really garagey. That's what this sounds like to me, man. They're finally like kind of rocking out. And it's catchy too. So they got catchy elements. They got like jangly kind of jagged guitars and this loose thing that the stones did both early and middle and late in their career. And that's what I hear, man. So I, I I'm digging where they're going here. You know, this, this is to me kind of the point that we talked about in the last track. Like this to me is where they could have gone if, if they would have gotten more electrified. 
more yeah. jangly and more, more, just more messy and all over the place. They were pretty messy as it as it was, but <laughs> yeah, this song combines a mess with some cool, catchy melodies too. I love it. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing tight about this effort. Definitely, no, definitely a, lot, no. a, lot of, a lot of mess, but that's part of what makes it work. You know, you hear Rolling Stones on Promise. There is a band, uh, we'll see if you can figure it out, but that I just hear incredibly thoroughly uh, here on track eight, which is To The Kill. You want to take a crack at it, Nub? Yeah, my crack would be television. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I mean, yeah. Um, so I'm thinking about something that actually uh, took place after this. Okay, well, don't uh, say yet. Okay. Let me see if I can guess. So you're, you give me that hint, though, because my my brain went right to television. Yeah, I'll give you a little, little more of a piece of it here. What do you hear? Wow. Um, I'll give you a hint. Sure. Bass. Bass. And crazy dissonant guitar. Built a spill. Don't you hear some Primus in there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you get a fretless uh, bass yeah. doing a lot of goofy stuff. You got dissonant guitar work. It's It's a little sloppy, but kind of all makes sense. I Man, I'm telling you what, I got to the end of this song and I'm like, Oh my God. I don't know if Primus like liked the violent femmes at all, but like, wow, that is straight Primus, you know, in terms of, you know, some of the things that the bass, the fretless bass sound is doing and some of the ways that they're kind of creating these weird sort of pieces that all sort of fit together. The only thing missing is sort of Tim Herb, Herb. type drums. <laughs> that's what I was just going to say. It's like yeah. Primus without Herb. Though. That's right. That's and right. that was the magic of Herb, right? Is he brought the whole thing together. Yeah. With this yeah. huge drum sound and this huge drumming, you know? That's right. That's it right. just further proves that the drummer is the most important gig in the band. We've all known that for a long time. <laughs> well, uh, I'm kind of not surprised to hear you say that. So track nine is really, you know, we're, we're down the stretch here. We've only got two to go. This is probably, I would say this is probably the second biggest hit on the record and certainly one of the more memorable songs. And, and I think it's kind of good that they showed that they can pop a track in the back half of the record so that you didn't think it was just a front half uh, anomaly, but, but certainly they were able to, to, to strike a pretty memorable one here in track nine with uh, gone daddy gone. Now, I, I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on this knob. I, I think that this song is just gloriously ahead of its time. This to me is like, I, you know, this is like festival rock, like 25 years before it was even a possibility in terms of the progression, the beat, the, the, the vocal line this xylophone layer. I mean, there are two xylophone solos in this song. I feel like, I mean, the performances during the drums and guitar break are really cool. You know, it's, I mean, to your point, these aren't um, masterful players, but I'll tell you what, there's some good skill going on uh, 
uh, during some of those breakdowns here and some good instrumentation. I think this song holds up tremendously well here on track nine. Sounds very modern to me. What do you think? I do love the xylophone thing. I, I think the melody of that is really cool. You know, it just provides some stability. I, I was curious, you know, in, in the credits, it's credited to Gordon Gano and Willie Dixon. I think Willie Dixon was like, like dead by the time this came out. Yeah, or at least it, really old. It was just a lyrical thing. So, um, oh, okay. you know, he, he pulled some of the, a couple of lyrical lines from, I think from Willie Dixon's song, I just want to make love to you, which is one of his classics. And I, I think that's where that writing credit comes from. So just purely lyrical. Got it. Okay. But yeah, I, I think that, uh, the chorus works well and the xylophone, especially the, like the little xylophone kind of breaks, you know, or solos or whatever you want to call them. Right. I think those are really effective. Smart of them to incorporate a unique instrument into their sound. And again, I kind of wish they would have done this more often. Uh, it enhances the sound. It fills it out a little bit more. And it's, it was just kind of zany and funny too. You know, that's the thing about the violent films that I struggled with as a younger listener was like trying to figure out whether I'm supposed to take this seriously or not, <laughs> right. you know, right. like that was totally a thing for me, man. It was like, yeah. it wasn't like Zappa enough to, to know that it's, you know, absurdity mixed with talent. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like modern lovers in the tongue in cheek way. It was something just so unique. And I, I had a hard time connecting, but moments like this, it was like, okay, that that's a little, a little out there and a little funny and a little cool. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing if, you know, the modern day nubs takes a viewpoint on that. And if you, if you think you have a theory on that one, which none of us at age, you know, 12, 13, 14 could necessarily figure out, but we'll see if you can, when we get to the final cut, but you know, first let's close it up with, I think a fairly memorable uh, kind of slow piece here at the end in the final track, Good Feeling. And that's the way it closes. Nubs, I, I, I never really listened to Good Feeling that much, frankly, because, you know, oftentimes with this album, you you know, you're picking your spots or you're, you know, sort of getting through to gone, daddy gone. And you hear kind of a slower number and you switch the disc or whatever it may be. So, you know, really hadn't revisited this track in a very, very long time. And I'll tell you what, to get something in there that, that certainly has some, no no pun intended, some feelings, some emotion to it. I think it's got some depth, which there isn't a ton of that on this record. So, you know, to your point about kind of adding something with some instrumentation, I think it's very charming that you kind of end this, uh, again, this short and sweet record here with something that kind of closes out in a way that's pretty memorable, pretty emotional, at least per Violent Femme standards, and takes you out with some layers and, and something that, you know, does kind of give you a good feeling at the end here on track 10. What do you think? I don't hear the emotion. I can't connect with you on that one. I think it's a little annoying, <laughs> personally. Hmm. I, I like the vocal harmonies, if you want to call them that. It sounds more like doubles, but I guess there's some harmony in there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not feeling the emotion side. I, maybe for Violent Femme scale, so I, I might be able to get that. But yeah, I I tend to think of this a little bit more as like a, a an annoying closer. 
in one that does not, I think the second side starts to bring in some very, you know, individual textures, things almost like the violent from sound, if you will. And one that they would seemingly not return to very often later in their career. I would have no idea because I never really heard the albums after this one, but I think, you know, gone daddy gone and promise get to this thicker musicality and these layers there's layers here, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not picking up the emotion on it, but I'm glad you are, man. T, I might just still be totally scarred from the fact that I never thought I'd see my brother again. Yeah. I mean, exactly. this, you know, That's, I mean, it's a soundtrack to sadness, you know, well, I owed you an apology for like the last 27 years or so. so you know, <laughs> but glad, we, glad we straightened that out, but right. I actually find good feeling to be uh, one of the more layered, you know, efforts on the thing, you know, and, and just cause it's slow and just cause it's something that kind of brings you along that way. I, I actually find it to be a pretty thick, um, track, which, which to your point, I agree, kind of complements a, a pretty thick back half of the record. So front half is pretty poppy and pretty stripped down, uh, and, and pretty upbeat. And, uh, back half takes you through some pretty good layering, some pretty good instrumentation and, and, and some of the unexpected that I think when people sort of revisit this record, you certainly realize what you're getting in the front half with all those classics. But in the back half, there are moments where you kind of say, you know, it's, it's a little bit lusher than I remember. Uh, and I think that's a good feeling kind of closes it up in that way. All right, Nub, that's a wrap on the Violent Femmes. 10 tracks, 36 minutes. Did it matter? It mattered to hipsters all over the world. But what's interesting to you is the hipsters, you know, they're starting to have kids now, right? So we got like little mini hipsters running around all over the place. I could see this album connecting with young listeners. I could in that sort of out of this world kind of way, kind of similar to what we talked about last week with my buddy Valentine's loveless, you know, it's so different and so almost ridiculous compared to what today's music sounds like. I do think there's a place for this album with young listeners today in terms of introducing the avant-garde at least in the pop world, you know, so some people might listen to this and say, oh, it's not avant-garde. Well, I think for pop music, it is. I think for chart-topping platinum seller, it's very avant-garde. And I think this is like a gateway drug that you can follow to just understand that there's some different things out there. There's some sounds that were one time very famous, yet very weird too. And anything that's, that's that weird, that becomes that successful, you got to respect and you got to think could become a, a national treasure for times to come. And I do think this album has a little bit of a national treasure feel to it. So f- for hipsters and sons and daughters of hipsters, I'm going to say that the album matters. I think it could connect with the new generation. That's my hypothesis. T. Now, does it matter for me personally? It does not. You know, it's not something that, that I uh, crave a whole lot, right? But, but I see its place and I respect its place for sure. And I think it was a cool pick. I enjoyed talking about it. So I don't know. What do, what do you think? Does it matter? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really understand your hipster thing. I, you know, this was more of a college, you know, kind of frat boy, uh, you know, thing than it was, in my mind, a hipster thing. In fact, you know, I think many hipsters would point to some other things long before they would point to the violent femmes. Um, so I, I see that part a little bit differently. Like 90, um, you feel that way about nineties hipsters. I agree with you with modern hipsters, but like nineties hipsters, this, 
this seemed to me, I didn't hear this coming out of, of dorm rooms. You know, I, uh, maybe with, maybe it was a frat, you know, like more of a fraternity house sort of. So uh, I'll answer, yeah. I'll answer your question. I, I do think this album matters because it, it really did reach. I mean, part of its appeal was it reached a very wide audience. And in the early eighties, you know, you had things starting to separate off a little bit. You had disco starting to fade off. You had pop, you know, kind of covering one part of the spectrum. You had heavy rock and roll, you know, cause the hair metal thing hadn't really started yet, but you had kind of what we would deem now as classic rock really sort of taking over an area. You had kind of college rock, which is stuff that was a little bit more stripped down. Um, you had new wave and, and, you know, some of these type of things happening. So, you know, you had a lot of these things starting to branch off and, and in many cases it was seeking commercialism. And in many cases it was sort of an expression of making sort of more of an artistic statement. In this case, it was a time where minimalism was dwindling. Things were starting to become more commercial. Things were starting to become more powerful more layered, more produced. And I think in 1983, as those things were all amping up, this came out and sort of said, listen, you can be three dudes, you know, with a couple of acoustic guitars and a single drum with brushes. And as long as you've got memorable songs, you know, you're going to make it work. And not only did they make it work, they kind of produced this classic. Like, hey, Duran Duran, take that. You know, it's sort of deal, right? Because remember, you know, yeah. synthesizers yeah. were all the rage. Of that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's kind of a, you know, I mean, keyboards were starting and layering was starting and production. And these things were really starting to take off. And, you know, these guys come along basically performing as you would in a high school talent show on a recording that, you know, goes gold within a matter of a few years and goes, you know, nine times platinum within 20 years. That's unique. That's different. And and I do think there was an appeal here. It was kind of like, hey, I know where this is going. We're about to enter the decade of decadence and of uh heavy production and heavy commercialism. But you know, we're gonna throw something at you that didn't have to rely on any of that stuff and really, really made a splash. Now you don't need to love the record to appreciate that. So I do think it mattered quite a bit. And this was a very diverse audience. Now, this was something that hit a lot of different spots. This was not just post-punk types. This was not just college types. This was not just younger, older. This was something that really sort of ran the gamut, covered a lot of different spectrums of audience. And I think that's part of why you know, maybe at this point, it's more about a few of the songs having longevity uh, than the album as a whole. But, you know, you revisit this record, even the deep cuts, you're going to get a lot of things that were very, very memorable. And, and a lot of things that I think most would considered really had an impact on a time period where minimalism was starting to fade. And these guys kind of took one more swipe at it. And did it very, very effectively. And I do think that uh, for all those reasons, the Violent Femmes debut, which they were really never able to recreate the magic, uh, they certainly did on this record, whether you like the songs or like the band or don't. Nub, let's get to your final cut, buddy. Uh, uh, this will be interesting, although I think I know where you're headed. So are you putting this one on the turntable in the collection, Collecting Dust, or... Are you taking this sucker to the for sale bin? What do you got, buddy? <laughs> well, I hope I get a few bucks for it, but I am, I am taking Violent Femmes to the for sale bin 
first of all, I think everything you just said was very well stated and I like your analysis of it, but the songs still just aren't outstanding enough to carry that. You know, I think you're totally right about the minimalism and the kind of its place and, and some of the uh, things that were happening at the time in music that this album might've been addressing or countering. I love all that. And I respect all that, but the songs themselves just, they're, they're just not that great, you know? And the ones that were became mega classics, right? I'm really thinking about Blister in the Sun and to an extent, Kiss Off. And for me, you know, I, I can't hear those songs anymore. I just can't. So you look at the rest of the record, top to bottom, you know, what's going on here? Couple strong moments on the back half. And it is a factor for me, T, as you well know. I like bands where you, you get into the band, the catalog. There's variation in the catalog and you follow the band's story and, and, and there's other aspects of what they put out before or after that you really get fascinated by. It is a factor for me that this band virtually like did nothing else after this, you know, that was anything notable or anything that you, that you could really connect with. And yeah, so but that really shouldn't matter to your final cut. I mean, this is not, you know, we're not, we're not talking about the band. We're talking about the album and yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it, I, I could have predicted that you were going to put this one in the, in the for sale bin. I, I guess we'll get to it with my final cut, but yeah, it's, it's the band certainly hit their peak. I mean, I think this was kind of career for them. And, and I think you make a lot of good points about, uh, you know, a certain lack of uh, certain approaches and certain, uh, skill sets, but you know, but I don't think you should factor in what they did thereafter or their entire catalog into this assessment. Well, I'm factoring in it because it does involve whether you keep this in your collection or not. Like, do I need a Violent Femmes? You know, you know me as a collector, man. It's like there's certain things that I I even own that I just maybe don't even love, but it's like part of the collection. That's why we have that as one of our things. I think in the collection, right? Does it need to be there? I don't think this does because it's. I, I don't think that a Violent Femmes album needs to be in the collection. And some of that is what they did afterwards. It's it's just a relevance piece. It's like is this did did this band ever achieve? great relevance. I don't think they did in music history. I think they did because it's, it's the soundtrack to uh, one of our most interesting memories as brothers, you know, <laughs> Woodstock 94 and the whole thing. So I like the history that it has with us, but in terms of like, do, is my collection incomplete without the Violent Femmes first album? Uh, for me, no. And I, I think their history does have something to do with that for sure. So anyway, T I'm now extra fascinated to hear yours. What, uh, where do you got this album, The Final Cut? Well, I, I'm going to be honest. I came into this with a little bit of a preconceived notion uh, because it's a record that, you know, you did kind of get sick of. It's a record that you did. Uh, you know, many of the tracks could be deemed overplayed, but I wanted to come into this with a completely clean slate, a completely open mind, you know, not uh, sort of deciding beforehand how this was going to go based on some songs being a little tired, but a real assessment of the record top to bottom. And I got to tell you that my preconceived notion was probably that this was going to be something that you'd either, you know, put in the for sale bin or have it be collecting dust if it really sort of gave you a few kind of positive recollections when plowing through it. I got to say it upgraded all the way up to in the collection for me. And that was because in today's world of festival rock and of layering and of production, where these elements we were talking about earlier have gotten even worse, to think that a you know rather minimalist recording 
I mean, you can hear strings buzzing. You can hear studio sounds. This is not like a polished record. Yeah, it sounds like they recorded that, it in a, in, in a closet or in a bathroom. That's you know? right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's part of the charm. And in 1983, you really have to appreciate that. So I got to say, I wasn't anticipating for this to be one that, you know, was going to make it much higher than sort of, uh, you know, for sale been consideration. But this is why you do it. You go through it, you put it in the context, you kind of judge how it's held up. And I think that the album is held up extremely well. And I do think it's going to be one of those important areas where you can show, you know, younger kids that are interested in rock or interested in kind of all the different dynamics that were taking place throughout the 80s, most of which went in a a very pop heavy direction, that there was this record in 1983 with three dudes from Milwaukee. Uh, performing something that you could have heard on a street corner, just ask Chrissy Hines. She heard it on a street corner and decided to add them to their show that night. And that there was something magical about it. You know, that's worthy of something that uh, I'm going to put in the collection because I do think it's a staple of, of someone's collection that appreciates that decade. It's something that maybe at times got a little annoying or a little overplayed or whatever. But now you sort of go back, revisit it. I think it's a wonderful record to revisit. And with all those things in context, I kind of put my, you know, some of my preconceived notions aside and I'm going with in the collection on Violent Femmes debut record. All right, Nub, and let's see if you can put some of your preconceived notions aside here, buddy, and uh, get down with some Dolores. Here <laughs> what what have I ever had a preconceived notion? <laughs> I can't hear you. I can only hear Dolores. All right, buddy, what do you got in your head? Well, let's go with another uh, band where the singer, you know, became a Christian and ruined the whole thing or <laughs> kind of similar to what you described earlier with Violent Femmes. That's Sunny Day Real Estate and the song Jaina. Is that what happened to them? Yeah, that's what happened to them. Yeah. Jeremy Enoch mm-hmm. became a Christian and like broke the whole band up. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, I mean, they reunited eventually, but then they broke up again. You know, nothing but drama with Sunny Day. But uh, Jay Nuh, which I think is off the pink record, if I remember correctly, next would be a, a stick song that I think you like, T, and I like it a lot. And then, you know, the Prager Sticks fans would hate me for this, but the song Babe. Oh, I love know? Babe. I yeah. know, right? That is an awesome D. Young track. Yeah. I think a lot of people hear the little keyboard intro and it's kind of like sounds kind of cheesy and like, uh, I forget what that effect is. It's some kind of, you know, sort of uh, Oregon keyboard. It's like a Rhodes from, piano, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of Rhodes. Like but, uh, you know, man, when that song kicks in, that chorus kicks in, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah I, I love, love I babe. Love, love babe. <laughs> I love babe. Totally. I actually like babe. There's a big debate. Are you a babe guy or a lady guy? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, lady is great too, but I gotta say I'm a babe guy. Are you? Hmm. Yep. I'm a babe guy. I think that that's a great, great ballad from, I guess that would be very, was it very late seventies or early eighties? That song? Yeah. Like 79. It was off cornerstone. I think, you know, I think 1979 was that album. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, okay. Yeah. I'm probably a lady guy in the end. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I love babe. There's nothing wrong with being a lady guy. That's a great tune. You're my lady. Of the morning. Tommy Shaw's got to hit that like super high note, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And then third would be uh, off of the album, the Everglow. And this is by May. And the song is, this is the countdown, which I think is the best song on the album. 
overall. Yeah, there's some awesome, that being the oh. title track of that record, the Everglow is fantastic. Yeah. 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 Just spectacular album for sure. All right. T what is in your head? Ken Andrews on that production and the Everglow. They, those guys really put together a beauty there. Yes, sir. Uh, Nubs, I've got a little bit of a theme on my, in your head, I must say. And that theme is live. Okay. So there's going to be a little weaving theme throughout all three the, the band songs. live or there's live tracks. Live. Well, just, you just, you just hold okay. your horses. We'll all get right. to it. Okay. The first is this song called keys to imagination. And that's by <laughs> Yanni from Yanni. live at the Acropolis which is a record that everyone should own. Yeah. And he maybe the master of between song banter. Oh, cause you know, you'd never hear Yanni speak during the show because he doesn't, well, I mean, you don't hear him sing is what I mean. Yeah. But then between songs, you take the microphone and he just go into these like endless dialogues about yeah. the song about making love and things like that. Things of that nature, you know? Like we were seeing him, it was like on the Acropolis tour. He was like huge at this moment. He just, just out of nowhere before one of the songs, you know, this is a song I wrote about making love. And it's like, dude, it's instrumental. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I mean, you didn't write it about Jack shit. Right? It's instrumental. And, and I mean, nothing against Yanni, but not a song you'd really want to do it to. Right? <laughs> right. All these like weird stuff going on, the instrumentation going on. It's like, man, that'd be distracting. <laughs> but I love that song. That's a great call. We got to see Yanni in his heyday when he had the flowing hair and the stash and the white outfit. I mean, Thankfully. We, we, yeah. Yeah. I'm very, it was thankful. on the Acropolis tour. I mean, yeah. literally he was his, that was the height of his commercial success. Yeah. And like a year later, he shaved the stash and cut the hair. It's like, good thing we saw him when we did. You know? Yeah, exactly right. So the second is very relevant to the episode. This is the Modern Lovers, who we talked about. And they put out a live, they only had one record, I think. And then they put out this live album. And uh, they have this nine minute song called Ice Cream Man, where they, you know, Jonathan Richmond basically keeps pausing and then repeating the chorus and then pausing and repeating. It's sort of a sing along. It's a very goofy kind of uh, performancey type thing but uh ice cream man by the modern lovers who's very relevant to the violent femmes which we just discussed which is off their live album and then the third song is a song called freaks by the band live ah yes secret samadhi so there you go so to answer your question buddy you know it was a theme that included both the style of the song as well as the band itself that spoiler alert is an album we might look into sometime soon. Interesting. Yeah, well, for sure. it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating one, but, uh, but you know, I think, uh, all in all nub, we, we just wrapped up a rather fascinating one again, no matter where you land on it. It's something that, uh, is certainly a part of, uh, pop culture, uh, certainly provided a lot of memorable moments for many people. And frankly, some songs that are frankly just eternal and you don't, you know, get to talk about an album every day and every episode in our case on the, on the deal here on the old podcast here where you have songs that really will live on forever. Now this effort, whether you like it or not, whether you're putting it on the turntable or in the for sale bin or wherever it may be, you can't deny that there are songs that will live on forever, truly forever. And there are a couple of those on the record tonight. And Nub, it was good to get your take and uh, enjoyed discussing this one with you, buddy. Great choice, T. Really loved uh, re-listening to this one. This is an album that, you know, never listened to without the uh, podcast. And uh, that's what's cool about this, man. Is you can pull some things out that you haven't listened to for a good 20-some you know, years and check it out again. So 
Well done, man. Great choice. Indeed, buddy. Hey, listen, that's a wrap on 5-5, episode 55, which means we will be coming at you, coming at you with episode 56, where Nubs will bring a bag of treats to you all. But for now, we will wrap episode 55, and we'll be back next week here on Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins that's about it that's all we have i hope it wasn't too disappointing we will see you on tour until then take it easy